0: Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Penn State Agronomy Highlights. Joey Akins here coming uh, from Mercer County. Joined with me as always is my co-host Dwayne Miller. You doing good today, Dwayne? Doing well, Joey. Thanks. We are super excited today.
1: We've got a guest from the University of Georgia here to talk to us about living cover crops and their systems that they're uh, working with down there in Georgia. So it's my pleasure to introduce Nick Basinger from the University of Georgia. Nick, welcome to the show. Why don't you say hi to our audience and tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, yeah. Hey, y'all. i um, glad to be here today. Um, you know, as Joey said and, and Dwayne said, my name is Nick Basinger. Um, I am a, a weed scientist at the University of Georgia. Um, most of my research focuses on integrated weed management Uh, which involves, you know, things like living mulches, cover crops. Um, We do work in lots of different systems, um, everything from uh, cotton, corn, soybeans, um, to pastures as well. So a pretty diversified uh, program. Um, But uh, really excited to be here today with you guys um, and and really glad to um, have had the invitation. So thank you all for the invite.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And as Dwayne mentioned, today's topic is going to be these living cover crop systems. And we've had episodes in the past where we've mentioned cover crops, certainly, but uh, this is going to be a little different. So just to kick us off here, Nick, can you kind of break down some of the key differences between one of our regular winter cover crop systems that folks are more, you know, accustomed to and familiar with versus one of these intercropping living cover crop systems? Sure,
2: sure. Yeah. So, so, you know, one thing to keep in mind is a lot of our cover crop systems are grown, what I call asynchronously, right? They're grown opposite that of our, uh, of our cash crop. So, you know, a lot of times we'll see things like um, some of our grasses, like uh, cereal rye or um, our wheat. Um, you know, we've got uh, also legumes. Uh, crimson clover is a big one here in the south um that a lot of folks will grow um you know hairy vetch is another one as well um and so all of those are going to be planted in the fall and um they're going to grow through the winter assuming you're going to plant a a summer uh, cash crop they're going to grow through the winter um and then at some point in the spring uh based on um either your normal planting time or uh the the time of uh of that maturity of that cover crop. You don't want to necessarily let it go to seed. So you'll, you'll terminate that in some way. So a lot of times that depends on, uh, your cropping system, right? So, you know, if you're doing some organic, uh, cropping systems, you may have to do, a, a roller crimper, you know, timing of that, uh, termination is going to be a lot more important, um, so that you actually get a good kill on that cover crop. Uh, A lot of our guys down here in Georgia will just go through and spray a lot of that um, cover crop with uh, glyphosate uh, to kill it off and then and then roll it, uh, roll it down to kind of create that nice mat. So the idea behind, you know, what we would call our traditional cover crops would be that, you know, you would you would grow them and then they would be dead at the time of of planting. Right. Or in some cases, you know, some of the stuff that we're we're doing. not only here at UGA, but also other places uh, throughout the Southeast and kind of up y'all's way in Pennsylvania is looking at, um, you know, can we plant while that cover crop's still green? Does it have to be completely brown to plant? Um, So there's, uh, there's a group of us um, as part of the grow network getting rid of weeds. um, The grow network who's doing some, uh, some work uh, coming up uh, here in the next year's uh, looking at that with with soybeans in particular, um, and so um, that network is specifically you know focused on integrated weed management, um, and so being part of that group's been been really good. So that's our traditional kind of cover crop system. Now, where we get into what we call living mulches, you know, we we end up kind of thinking about living mulches as a cover crop that's going to um, live together. With our with our our cash crop, right? So this could be um, one of the big ones that we use here in Georgia. Uh, Dr. Nick Hill, who is now uh, he's an emeritus professor, he's he's been retired for a couple of years now, um, has been using uh, a white clover as a uh, living mulch or a living cover crop. And so the idea behind that is basically that it's going to be growing at the same time as our as our cash crop, and so. You know, that provides uh, wheat suppression just as a, as a traditional uh, uh, cover crop would. But what's great about a living mulch is that, you know, depending on what type of living mulch you choose, in our case, a leguminous cover crop for our living mulch, it's going to continuously provide uh, a source of, uh, of nitrogen over the course of the season. Whereas if we look at our leguminous cover crops are, that are more traditional, we basically just get a bump of nitrogen at the very beginning of the season, right? It's all released. It's all mineralized kind of towards the beginning of that season. You know, we don't necessarily get that benefit throughout uh, throughout the entire season. You know, that being said, with any cover crop, there are some logistical challenges, right? I mean, that's something that uh, we were talking a little bit before, Joey, about some of the, the growers that are really gung-ho about, Planting cover crops. And then there's others that are a little bit more hesitant to do that. Um, and a lot of that has to do with being having the right equipment, being prepared for the biomass that's produced, having a really good understanding about what the what your goals are for that cover crop. You know, with our living mulch, we're really interested in having something that's almost symbiotically living with our uh with our cash crop and, and being able to, to to have some benefit from that.
1: So just as you talked about that, um, a question that came to my mind Nick is how how long have either you or the university down there how how long have they been experimenting with this type of a system?
2: Yeah, so um, I got to UGA in uh, in 2016 or sorry 2018 my bad uh, I got here in 2018. And Nick Hill had been doing work on, um, on living mulches, I think about four or five years prior to me getting here, you know, about 2013. Most of uh, Dr. Hill's focus was in corn production systems. So he did a lot of work on, you know, seeding rates and and what we, and one thing I guess we should talk about um, with living mulch too is uh, vegetation-free strip width. Um, so he did some work on that um, and corn, um, a vegetation free strip with is basically just a area that's basically got no vegetation in it. Right. So we oftentimes will go in and band an herbicide over top of a, of a living mulch, like white clover, uh, which is stoloniferous, meaning that it's got stolons, just like you would have Bermuda grass um, in your yard. It's got stolons that kind of run across the top of the, of the soil. And so it will actually fill in year after year, um, and so you have to reestablish those vegetation strips. And so, you know, as part of our burn down program, we'll actually go in and you know burn uh, a ten inch strip for corn, and then use that uh, use that vegetation free area to actually plant our corn into. And then over the course of the season, that living mulch will actually move back in and cover up that strip. And so it'll form a, a again a mat of of clover. The answer to your question is it's. We've been doing it quite some time now. Um, so I've been doing living mulch uh, when when I came on as a faculty member. Um, Dr. Hill was having trouble with weeds in his living mulch and was like, "Dude, we got to get you like rolling on this living mulch thing because um, I'm about to I'm about to leave and there's so much more for us to do here." one of the biggest challenges with living mulch is, you know, how do we control weeds um, while it's establishing because it's a white clover it, it's a very small seeded um, cover crop. It establishes really slow over the course of the winter. And then as soon as we start to get some warm days here in the South, it, it goes bananas, right? I mean, it'll, it just completely, you know, it'll go from nothing to an entire field of clover in a matter of, you know, three or four weeks. You know, he was like, we've got to do some work on this. So one of the first things that we did was looked at, you know, what can we do to manage weeds during the establishment period of this uh, of this living mulch? And so for us with the with the uh, with the white clover, it's worth the investment up front to do that sort of weed management and in that living mulch because we're you know, we're going to use it more than one year. It's perennial you know, we're, we've had some experience, um, with, with Dr. Hill where he's had that living mulch basically last five plus years, um, with proper management. So he's had to do a little bit of weed control in, in that, um, to kind of, you know, make sure that it has longevity. Um, and we have a current study that we've been going, that's been going about three years in cotton and, you know, we've gotten to the point to where uh, we're we're gonna we're, we've talked about reseeding at a lower rate. Um, you know, as part of our our discussion this morning, right? We're we're actually planting cover crops this afternoon. We're gonna end up overseeding that a little bit just to kind of we've got some clover there, but our it's kind of been beat down with all the equipment and everything else that we have, and so we we decided to to go in and seed at a little bit lower rate. So. We've got we've been doing this work for for about four and a half years under under my watch and Dr. Hill did it for another probably like four or five before I was here. That was a long answer to your simple question. No that's that's <laughs> cool
1: to hear some of that some of that history of how how that how long that's been going on. and you mentioned Dr. Hill and him getting quite a bit of research done in corn. Mm-hmm. but I uh, you know just out of curiosity, are there, certain cash crops that are better suited to this type of a system typically here in Pennsylvania we've got our corn bean rotation some mm-hmm. s- small grains in our in our cash grains but uh, you know you've got some different crops down there that you work with so right Tell us a little bit about which crops lend itself best to this system
2: yeah so kind of the focus of our of our last couple of years has been you know as I mentioned Dr. Hill did a lot of work in corn. But one of the things about, uh, unlike, you know, Pennsylvania, where you guys are, corn's very small acreage here for us. I mean, we, we have very limited acreage uh, in the state of Georgia. Most of it's kind of, we, got, we have a little bit down in the, um, in the coastal plain region, but a lot of it's kind of in the um, Limestone Valley, which is kind of up in the northwestern corner of, of Georgia. We had kind of the thought of, hey, we probably need to be thinking about how does this apply to some of our larger acreage crops like cotton, which is why, you know, we transitioned as Dr. Hill, you know, retired, you know, our first thought was, well, we have a ton of cotton and and a ton of um, peanuts here in the state of Georgia. What can we do with those crops specifically to, to look at these living mulches? And so, you know, we've been doing cotton work for some time now, about three or four years. My hesitation is, and this is something that we, again, have to Continue to work on with our nematologist is what are you know some of the potential issues with it being a leguminous crop or a leguminous living mulch and then rotating into a leguminous crop like soybeans, a leguminous crop like peanuts. Some of the challenges with this is hey, is this serving as a green bridge potentially for some of our problematic pathogens that we have in in uh, peanuts and then you know in our in our soybean crop and so you know, this, again, there's tons of work that we still need to do, but the two that we've mainly focused on for us in Georgia are cotton and corn. Um, and Dr. Hill really did some nice work with corn, uh, to the point to where I feel really comfortable about the outcome of the research that he did. So, I mean, he was able to really cut down on the amount of nitrogen that they were putting out. Uh, we've been able to do the same thing with our cotton crop. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's some uh, some significant benefit there.
0: So you'd say, as far as the cover crop species go, you're primarily looking at legumes, then.
2: Yeah, we're primarily looking at legumes, and, and part of the reason we we're focused on legumes for for living mulch is because of that nitrogen benefit, right? right? I mean, one of the challenges if we were to to go in and plant um, a living uh, grass species, you know, with our uh, with our cash crop, we're much more challenged for water Uh, we're much more challenged for a lot of our nutrients like nitrogen and so there's a lot more you know this is one of the downsides right one of the trade-offs of some of our living mulches is that competition for resources for our legumes specifically you know our, our white clover one of the reasons that Dr Hill chose that is because it's relatively has a relatively low water requirement although it still competes with water uh with our cash crop. So that is again another trade-off for our living mulches. But at the same time, we're getting the benefit of that nitrogen, right? Which is which makes that investment of putting that that living mulch uh, cover crop out there uh, worth it. Um, Because we are, we are benefiting, it's providing some benefit from from the nitrogen standpoint. And then we've also seen some pretty significant decreases in the amount of um of weed pressure that we've seen when we do have a living mulch, when we actually make those comparisons, I had a PhD student recently that um, just graduated. He compared we had we had a uh, Palmer amaranth is one of our driving weeds uh, that drives a lot of our decisions in the, in the southern U.S. We had a really unique opportunity to uh, plant into an area um, that had no history of Palmer. And um, so we had a cotton crop that we planted into a field, no history of Palmer. So we actually planted some Palmer into that field in, a, in, a, in an area, right? In a small area. But what it allowed us to do is look at these different population dynamics over time, right? So we, we basically, you know, um, seeded out that Palmer at a rate that you would normally see from seed rain of Palmer, tracked that population in terms of germination timing in terms of plant biomass for per unit area, seed production, um, all of those sort of, you know, all those sorts of things. And um, what was really interesting is that, you know, we saw with cereal rye and our living mulch, cereal rye kind of being our standard, you know, traditional cover crop, both of those performed equally well in terms of weed suppression, right, with Palmer. And we actually had, we had fewer um, weeds in both of those, um, in both of those cover crops, co- I should say cover crop in one living mulch, right? Um, if we're using the terminology correctly. And living mulch actually had, it was like 93% fewer palmer than like a bare ground system. CRI was like 95. So, I mean, they were very on par, but we're also getting, as I mentioned, the benefit of that, um, of that living mulch um, from the nitrogen standpoint. We had similar yields, you know, statistically non-significant difference there for for those um, two uh, cover crop regimes, and so basically they were they were suppressing weeds. We were getting the same yield, but we were we, our our cost in terms of inputs into the living mulch system um, was like greater than it was less than sixty percent of that of a bare ground system, and so you know we were we were. We still need to do some of the long-term economics on that. But I I think that, you know, seeing some of the benefit there really can have some long-term impacts on, on growers.
0: I think the short-term impacts there would definitely get people's attention as well. As far as the 60% decrease, that's very significant. Yeah. Um, I know you said that Dr. Nick Hill had done a lot of work with white clover and corn. And I think what you mentioned is really important about, uh, the specific type of cash crop that's going to be following your current cash crop, right? Like if we have that legume living mulch in our cotton, well, if we're going to peanuts, we might run into some issues. So mm-hmm. maybe in a corn cotton rotation, there'd be a little mm-hmm. bit more leeway there. Um, do you know if there's been any discussion about different types of clover? I know white clover is, it's a real hardy perennial species that mm-hmm. intolerant to a lot of, bad conditions and very prostrate growth habit but the red clovers and the crimson clovers do they get any play in this living mulch system
2: yes one of the things that is really interesting is I know some folks up I think up in I want to say Michigan if I'm not mistaken have been doing some work with cura clover k-u-r-a and they they've been doing some living mulch work as well And they found that that clover species is a lot winter, a lot more winter hardy than a white clover like we have here in the South. Those clovers are gonna be very specific to to growing regions. One of the other weed scientists uh, down in South uh, Georgia was doing some work with red clover because it's also perennial, just found that he was getting relatively inconsistent year to year impacts, right? So some years it'd be really great and other years it wouldn't be so great. Down on those soils, again, as I mentioned before, one of the challenges on those sandier soils is going to be a lot of our nematode problems. And so kind of that nematode relationship, and, and cotton is, is really susceptible to nematodes as well, right? We have a lot of resistant um, or, or tolerant varieties of cotton that are good um, for growing in those conditions. He and I kind of chatted when, when I started doing this living mulch stuff. It's like, man, I don't know, like how you know how that's going to go because I've done I've done some stuff with red clover and found really inconsistent results. And in terms of crimson, crimson is usually an annual, right? We grow it as a as a traditional cover crop. You know, if you are interested in, in using clover as a living mulch, um, I guess one of the first things to do is to to make sure that you do your homework and plant a perennial if that's the that's the type of system that you're wanting to to. Foster, right? Because um, there is a lot of, you know, there's lots of different types of clovers out there. We've done some work with crimson clover. There's uh subterranean clover that we've done some work with. I'm trying to remember, we planted another one as part of a cover crop trial with Audrey um, this year. That's also an annual.
0: Maybe berseem or Berceme,
2: yes. That's it. Berceme clover. Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah um, there's a lot of different types of clover out of there. So for somebody that let's say somebody was interested in trying this and they they didn't have it currently set up and they were, you know, they're going to plant corn come next growing season. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is the timeline and, and the methodology look like for getting this living mulch established in conjunction with the cash crop?
2: Right. So um, it takes planning. I'll tell you that first and foremost, it takes a lot of planning. You know, if we're talking about getting a white clover established, what we what we have found that works best for us is to basically prepare our ground. Uh, we do, you know, some tillage to get prepared uh, because we are dealing with a really small seeded crop. We will prep that ground. We found, well, I'll, I'll tell you two different ways that we found that works really well. One is in prep ground, one's in no-till. So for those that are wanting to do prep ground, we've been able to do a broadcast. And so what we'll do is we'll prep the ground. We'll run a cultivator over top of that prep ground and firm up the seed bed, uh, broadcast that um, that clover at about 12 pounds an acre. And then we'll come back in and run the cultivator one more time just to kind of firm that seed into um, into the soil. We have uh, we've also so one of my students, the same student I mentioned before that did the Palmer um, demography work. We played around a little bit with using a a standard drill, right? Uh, Like a Great Plains type drill and drilling this clover and found that we could really uh, decrease the amount of clover seed that we put out. You know, you can, you could get down, I think for his trial, we planted at about, um, about six pounds an acre. Uh, So we cut our seeding rate in half and had just as good of, of a stand without having to do, you know, too much extra land prep. You know, so we're we're kind of keeping our um, soil structure intact um, and and really promoting uh, the growth of that clover. Now, one of the challenges with that was making sure that before we planted with that uh, drill that we had mowed that area really short so that we had enough sunlight getting down in there and really pushing that clover out. Because it is a very, very small plant when it first comes up. You know, so we plant usually here in Georgia, we plant around optimal um, timing for planting for a living mulch for this uh, clover in particular um, is uh, is around October 15th. You know, but as I mentioned before, our, you know, that's usually about a month before our frost date here in Georgia. And so, you know, you think about what that means up in Pennsylvania. I don't know what y'all's first frost date is, but I would imagine it's a lot earlier than November 15th.
1: Yeah, we'd have to back the calendar up there a little bit for. Yeah, you for have to plant in July. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the northern tier folks might say, "Well, yeah, we're really we're really pushing it." So, yeah, you mentioned plant planting is key. Yeah. Um, is there a particular crop you like to put in prior so that you've got enough time, or is is your window of opportunity? Uh, obviously, it's longer down there, but mm-hmm. what do you typically? Have in as a previous crop.
2: I mean, corn's not a bad, not a bad deal, right? Um, one of the challenges that you do have to have to be considering with corn is all the chaff coming out the back, right? Um, and so that can, depending on what your post harvest protocol is, I know some folks will bale that stuff. Depending on where you're at, kind of out in the Midwest, folks will bale it up and and use it as a as a stover uh, or as like a, uh, feed even, uh, or a biomass crop. So, you know, with us, with we've done, we've done it after cotton, we've done it after corn. Um, but in both of those situations, we've had to be really cognizant of the trash from the previous crop. So, you know, when we're dealing with cotton, a lot of times, um, you know, we were talking cotton a little bit before we, we started, you know, it's getting out, it's getting out late. We always mow the stalks, Um, And those stalks basically are little trees. There's a lot of, it's, it's woody, right? And so that's something that we have to take into consideration when we go in and and are actually planting our cover crops. And so some folks down South will use airplanes, you know, they'll, they'll seed cover crops via airplane. Um, They'll seed cover crops. Um, They'll modify uh, a high voice sprayer um, to do some interseeding prior to canopy closure. And so, you know, there are ways around kind of getting those cover crops in later where you can plant almost a, almost a living mulch with your with your you know, traditional cover crops as well. So uh, there's even interseeding drills that are out there uh, that that work really well. So if you if you want to get in prior to dealing with some of the um, to the crop, you know, to that crop maturation There are there are options and opportunities to do that, even with a living mulch. You know, we've also done some planting where we've done um, soybeans intercropped with corn. And that was, you know, strictly out of uh, um, out of interest from us. It was a total failure. Like, Joey, you were talking about how people were saying like this is, you know, some things that you do are just an absolute failure. For us, it was a total failure and it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with. Our crop production products, it didn't have anything to do with, you know, our ability to plant the cover crops. We had an interceder that we did. It had everything to do with rabbits. And so, yeah, so so there are other things, you know, that they basically the rabbits were not touching the soybeans and the uh, in the alleyways. Um, but they were concerned about being seen. And so in between the corn, they would come in because there was cover and feed on those feed on those soybeans as they were coming up it can be a challenging thing, right? And so a lot of times when I talk to folks about doing living mulches, about doing cover crops, I always tell them, start small, start, start a manageable amount on your farm that you can give it a really good, as, as they say, the good college try, right? Um, to where you're not trying to do 10,000 other things and you're also trying to manage this huge um, investment into cover crops um, you know, 10 acres, 20 acres enough to where you can dip your toe in the water and see what works. Um, and then if you, and it also gives you a safe place to, to, um, try something out. Right. And if you fail, you're not failing big, you're failing small. And then you can, you can use that as a training ground. Joey, it seemed like you had a question. Was there something you wanted to ask?
0: Yeah, no, I was just curious. Um, you know, as far as the different, uh, different regions of the country. I know that depending on the species that you select, um, it's going to, it's going to really determine when you can get it in and when you can get it established and whether it's even reasonable. And, if folks want to plant cover crops up here, we always just tell them to plant corn silage because it seems like it's one of the only things that you can harvest early enough to, and then even then your only option after that's probably going to be cereal rye, right? So right. Um, I know you mentioned the the guys up in Michigan. Do you think this is pretty much more suited to the Southern climates or do you think it's realistic to try up our way?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, they, it seems like they've, they've made it work. Right, I mean they've selected the right species that works in that area. I think one of the challenges. Uh, I was li- actually listening to the World Oregon Wheat's podcast um, on my way down to the field on Friday, and they were talking about different challenges of you know being in North and South Dakota and having deep freezes, um, you know, with the soil freezing and you know what that does to pesticides and things like that. I think it's something to consider every different part of the country and finding what finding out what works there. Um, I think the folks that, that are in y'all's neck of the woods, I think there's probably something that works, right. And there's, but it's just going to take somebody doing the, doing the legwork either at the university or some growers who are just like, Hey, I want to try that. And just, you know, try doing their own, you know, backyard experiment as to what they feel like might work. And, um, I do feel like that we have the benefit of, of, of our warm Southern climate, um, really helping us get uh, good, good biomass, good quality uh, cover crop and living mulch growth over the course of the winter and into the spring. You know, I, I do feel like we have a really unique opportunity in the southern states to, to adopt cover crops, um, along with the fact that, you know, in a lot of our coastal plain soils, and I'm sure you saw this when you were at Auburn, you know, those coastal plain soils, we're dealing with half a percent organic matter. Right. I mean, it's just really low organic matter soils. And so, you know, those are soils that really can benefit from the use of cover crops, you know, as part of that production system. And so getting those growers to to try it on a small enough acreage to where they feel comfortable with it, where they will expand um, and really getting folks like like yourself and, and others that are in extension that are willing to say, hey, you know, this is a great thing. And really promoting that—that's where I see that we can really have the most benefit. Uh, but I do feel like we do have a unique opportunity in the southern states to really, you know, maximize cover crops in a way that maybe we can't maximize in other parts of the country. Where, you know, if you're out in Oklahoma, you're worried about about how much rain you're going to get, right? So that there's there's some changes um, that you would have to consider, you know, in those drier parts of the country. With, you know, your soil moisture and all of that with regards to cover crops and being able to grow those cover crops here in the southeast um, in these southern states that that um, that are that are doing a lot of this cover crop work. We get a lot of rainfall in the winter. We have warm winters. You know, it's going to get down to 28 last night here where I'm at. It's going to be a balmy, you know, 60 degrees today. Um, And that's like, our that's a pretty typical Southern winter, as you well know, right? I mean, huge temperature swings, but warm days, lots of growing degree days that we can kind of pick up over the course of that winter that, you know, y'all are not going to get where you're at in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned before, it's about knowing your specific situation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned starting small and, you know, a lot of that echoes with us in, in trying to encourage folks to to think about different types of of new technology so i had a just a couple follow-up questions to maybe some things we talked about there earlier during uh we, we were talking about establishment number one is how how long do you usually shoot for that white clover to be in in that field for for a living mulch how long of a duration might you expect that to be there
2: yeah, I mean, we, like I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, Doctor Hill had it five years plus, right? There's some spots where you know he had living his very first living mulch trial. Uh, there's still clover there today, and so, but you know, he did he did basically three years of of corn there, and then pulled out of that area and left it just left it alone. Didn't didn't spray it out or didn't do anything, and so there's still there's still clover there. You know, clover, I was actually talking with our forage breeding uh, folks that have done that actually released a variety of clover that we use called Durana. And it's a it's an intermediate white clover. You know, he was saying that, you know, clover's clover's hard seeded. So your populations may dwindle a little bit over time, but then with a little bit of. Like basically getting like a um, you know some sort of light secondary cultivation over the top just to stir up just a tiny bit of soil. He said that you know like a like almost like a tine weeder. He's like you could run a tine weeder type thing through there, and just you know you'd have a ton of clover come right back up because it's just it needs a little bit of coverage, allowing for that to that to break its dormancy.
1: Second second question I had in regards, uh, and you mentioned Doctor Doctor Hills, uh, you know initial research was. Down there in Georgia, are you guys looking at a strictly monoculture system, or are you doing some rotation work with with this?
2: Yeah, so we at this point we've done uh, just monoculture work. The trial that I mentioned earlier about uh, where we were looking at the Palmer demography, um, we're trying to push that into a long term study. Um, so at this point, we will uh, we've done it three years, and so typically um, our rotation. For Georgia it is three years of cotton, and then we'll rotate to something else. And our in southern in the southern part of the state, it's usually peanuts. Um, I'm in the northern part of the state, so we'll probably rotate to corn. You know, that's kind of the next frontier for us to be able to utilize that. We've set that study up as a large scale trial. Um, the individual plots are um, for us; they are 12 rows wide, and we're on 36 inch spacing. And they're you know fifty five feet long, and so we have the opportunity to to look at things on a little bit larger scale than we would. And as we you know as we've done in a lot of our research plots that are really small, right? They're you know several rows and twenty feet long, right? We 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 farm in twenty foot increments, right? A lot of times, and so you know this gives us the opportunity to look at some of those larger impacts of the impacts of those uh, of those cover crops and you know, our, our goal is basically to rotate out of cotton in the next, uh, after, after next year we'll rotate. So it'll be four years of cotton and then we'll rotate to, um, to corn. It's a little bit longer than I would prefer us to be in cotton, but we've got students that have to get some data off of those, off of those trials. Uh, I think that's kind of the next frontier for us in mm-hmm. terms of some of the living mulch work is, you know, thinking about, um, how do we integrate this into a rotation? Uh, how do we how do we think more diversified about um, our approach? Because um, we're just try- basically just trying to like establish a baseline for a lot of these crops. And so uh, we have been thinking very um, almost in a monoculture sense, right, of we're just trying to we're just trying to set the baseline. We're just trying to figure out what's the what's the best way for us to plant this? What's the best way for us to manage this? How is the fertilization regime different for you know these different um uh, these different cover crop uh, species, and just trying to get a little bit of depth and breadth there, um, and and then move on to all right. How do we now that we have an understanding of how each one of these crops is grown in these systems? How how do we integrate that into the rotation? Can we so, all
1: get into the sandbox together? Right. We know we can play separately, but right. Get them all. Get them all in there at once. Yeah awesome information we did talk a little bit before about some of the limitations and competition for water uh, nutrients those type of things if you'd have to tell us what it, what would you say the primary limitations are for for this living cover crop system
2: Yeah so I think some of the major limitations for that we've seen is, has been the limitation for water and so you know a lot of our work has been under irrigated systems. The other limitation that we've seen, and this has been, you know, with with several different trials looking at living mulch for cotton, I think there's a limitation on soil type, uh, to be completely honest. So we've done some work in our our coastal plain region, and we've had really great success for a year. And then as we perenniate that system and uh, go into year two, the clover just doesn't want to reestablish. I think that's one of the challenges. Is is you know one of our soil um, uh, folks had done some work in these coastal plain soils and found that you know just uh in those particular soils a half percent organic matter change basically was the difference between the clover thriving and the clover being non-existent on those soils. You know there there's some challenges for sure. When we get onto the more clay soils like we have here close to where I'm at, that's not a problem at all. Um, we don't have issues with that um, because we are able to accumulate a little bit organic, a little bit more organic matter. We are able to um, have s- soils that will hold a little bit more moisture, so there's a little less competition for the living mulch and, um, and between the living mulch and, and the cotton itself. So I think those. Are, I think I think the water thing is really one of the big one of the big challenges. Dr. Hill did some work or did a demonstration plot down in Auburn, actually. For the last Southern Cover Crops Conference, you know, some of the watering challenges and uh, communicating the different water needs for that crop uh, and cotton was challenging, right? Um, so I, again, I think I think water is really one of the big one of the big challenges with that, and understanding too, I think how you need to modify your fertility for us uh, with cotton. You know, we want to add enough nitrogen to get it going and keep it going, but we don't want to add so much that it gets to be ten feet tall, right? Because what happens is it doesn't transition from vegetative to reproductive states. And so, for us, what we've realized uh, using the nitrogen calculator—Are you all familiar with the nitrogen calculator that's come out of UGA with cover crops, Joey? You may have heard of it. of it. Basically, what you do is you you collect a sample. You can send it to the lab based on the sample based on the sample. Results, you then take those results and put it into the um the nitrogen calculator, and it will tell you basically how much nitrogen is going to be available to the crop after that, that cover crop has been terminated. Um and so we've we've used that for our living mulch to basically give us an estimate of uh in general how much nitrogen we should expect to see. We have gone under the assumption that. We for a cotton crop, we don't need to put out any nitrogen. We just need to supplement our P and K. We've had great success in terms of our yields, um, equivalent to that of you know basically having the s- standard inputs that would be required of a cotton crop on on our in our growing conditions. Dr. Hill also found that you know he was able to um, significantly cut back. I'd have to go back and look specifically at how much, but I know he he basically he basically found that he didn't need to add any more. Uh, any pop-up fertilizer any pre-plant fertilizer when he was using living mulch and then he just did a a, I think he side dressed at about a half a rate if I remember right um, and was still able to um, successfully I mean the corn yields were basically the same as a conventional um, system you know that conventional system had a lot more input uh, cost
0: yeah I'm just pulling it up here um the UGA one, which we'll link to both of these down in the episode description for Georgia's, the cover crop nitrogen availability calculator. And then Penn State's version is the graphical interface to determine cover crop and soil organic matter in credits. So you guys can go in Holy and put folks. in all your information there and we'll see whose numbers. Quite uh, the name. Whose, <laughs> whose system fits <laughs> out better numbers. Yeah, it's uh, uh, not as succinct there, but uh, hopefully both of them could give you some doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what
2: it's called as long as it works.
0: <laughs> right. And <laughs> we'll get into that a little bit later. I'm curious um, if, you know, offhand, you know, some more specifics about those nitrogen numbers. But um, we've spoken a lot so far about uh, the potential limitations. And I'm sure that some folks will, you know, lots of folks will have questions about, you know, like you said, what about the water? What about disease carryover? Mm-hmm. Um but also, you know, we wouldn't be doing this research unless we thought there was some potential benefit uh, specifically because, f- you know, you're a weed scientist, right? So for the weed suppression bit, I know previously you mentioned its ability to suppress uh, Palmer. And mm-hmm. it's, if, if I'm correct, it's a lot of the work that's been done on this cover crop weed suppression stuff. I think generally you see a stronger effect against those like small seeded broad leaves. Um what what can you say about the the suite of weeds that this living mulch system would be like most effective at suppressing? Because there's a lot of different types of weeds out there.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, this is kind of true for cover crops and, and living mulches um, together is that, you know, they tend to be really good at suppressing small, small seeded broadleaf weeds and small seeded grassy weeds. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the amount of biomass that's put on, right? So if you increase the amount of biomass, you know, you're, and, and you are, you know, dealing with a cereal rye cover crop or a living mulch cover crop, you're basically forming either a dead or living mat, right? For, 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 you know, all intents and purposes, it's a physical barrier, for those to actually for those weeds actually, to actually grow through, and, and some of our weeds like Palmer amaranth actually require a, a light trigger in order to germinate, right? So if we're inhibiting, if we have a physical mat, we're also, you know, physically um, inhibiting the light that reaches the, the soil surface, and as a result of that, that that Palmer amaranth never germinates, right? Because there's no that it's not receiving that light trigger. Um, to allow for it to germinate. I think when we when we think about wheat suppression we, we, with cover crops, we really have to, you know, manage our expectations and understand, hey, we're really going to get really great suppression of these small seeded uh, broadleaves and grasses. Where it gets to be a little bit more challenging is when we are dealing with these larger seeded uh, broadleaves and, and mo- you know, moderate to large seeded grasses. Um, so, you know, they're going to be you may get some suppression of those weeds, things like morning glory, sickle pod, um, Johnson grass, um, you know, things that are going to have these larger seeds, you know, are are going to be challenged by those cover crops, but you're not going to see the level of suppression that you would see with those small seeded, uh, you know, uh, broadleaf weeds and and grassy species. So the small seeded grasses and, and broadleaf things like crabgrass, things like broadleaf signal grass, things like uh, Palmer or water hemp, you know, those are going to be a lot more suppressed in, in a cover crop or living mulch situation.
1: We talked earlier a little bit about, you mentioned something called the vegetation-free strip width. Mm-hmm. Um, wouldn't be remiss if we wouldn't try to talk about <laughs> oh. herbicides here, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. How, to, how in the world are we going to Manage this living cover crop with our herbicides. So, talk to us, Nick, a little bit about pre, post, and what you've seen with that.
2: Uh, this is where the rubber really meets the road uh, in terms of of of, uh, of management. So, I mentioned earlier that a trial where we tried to interseed uh, soybeans and corn. And so, you know, being able to make that herbicide package line up was a was a genuine challenge, right? Because you want to make sure that you're you're able to manage weeds, but you also want to you can't put atrazine out like you would in corn, right? Your beans are not going to come up. And so, you know, finding those overlaps takes a lot of um, a lot of diligence. You know, with regard to like the living mulch, most of what we do is all banded applications. Uh, So that vegetation-free strip joint that you mentioned is where we really are applying all of our herbicides. We're not broadcasting herbicides over top of these. Uh, And so we're really, you know, focusing on weed management and and in some cases suppressing that, um, uh, that living mulch enough in the strip, right. Uh, Which is basically, if you want to think about this, one way to think about it is a 10 inch bare strip in a field, right? And it looks like pinstripes right through the field. And so that where the pinstripes are is where your crop's going to be planted. The way that we have managed it with our, with our group is we've used boom sprayers where we've plugged every other row, right? We've plugged every other nozzle. We've put... Um, basically the equivalent of a, of a drop on there, like you would have on a fertilizer applicator and put our banding nozzle on the end of that. And that's allowed us to, to maintain those strips. We've done a strip width study actually looking at the optimal strip width for cotton. And we, and Dr. Hill did the same, a very similar study looking at that for, uh, for corn. Um, And so, you know, both of those for, for Dr. Hill, I think it was about 10 inches uh, for corn, for us, we're seeing about 12 inches or so um, for cotton on, on our heavier soils, um, like we have here in Athens, you know, that strip with managing that strip with, you know, we've put out a full herbicide package, full normal herbicide program, but only applied it to the strips um, and had, had really great success um, in growing that crop. And um, you know, what ends up happening is that over the course of the season, and in the winter, because it is stoloniferous, that clover will eventually move back in over that strip. And we've been able to basically, you know, grow our 12 inch strip here and then we'll move it over. We're on 36 inch rows, right? So we'll move it over 18 inches the next year and, and grow our cotton in, in, in what was the inner row in the year prior. And so that is one of the benefits of a living mulch that's perennial is you can use it, as I mentioned before, year after year. Now, I will say some of those uh, some of those living mulches, right, or living uh, inter- interseeded uh, living mulches are going to be annuals. Right. So I mentioned the soybeans earlier. Right. Uh, there are other things like cowpeas and and other summer legumes that people will will interseed and grow as a living mulch uh, throughout the summer. And in those cases, right, everything has to be banded um, or else you're going to negate any sort of benefit that you have from from those uh from those living mulches, right? If you you broadcast over top of those, you're you're done, right? I mean that's the end of that.
1: So have you have you ever had are you coming in post with anything or are you putting your full package in pre?
2: For cotton, we we'll do a we'll do a burn down, we'll do a pre, we'll do a post one and two. Um, and then we'll actually, we'll actually put a lay by in too. So we will spray five times in that, um, which for cotton, that's pretty standard, uh, for corn, that's probably a bit overkill, right? I don't think y'all put out five total sprays in a, in a, in a corn crop.
1: Hopefully Uh, not.
2: Hopefully not. Right. But for, for cotton, you know, that's, that's pretty standard for us. So we're over the course of the season, you know, beating that strip down pretty good, Um, I know for Nick he did a standard uh, other other Nick right as we call him Dr. Hill did a full corn program as suggested by the University of Georgia he had regrowth of of that living mulch um, come back in in the the following seasons but I think the challenge with that too is uh, if you beat it down year after year after year after year at some point it's like any it's like any other weed right hopefully it you know, that weed is going to succumb to the program that you put out. And, but the, and so the living mulch is kind of the same way, right? So, you know, not that you have to baby it, but you don't want to just abuse it for the sake of abusing it, you know? So you are, and what ends up happening too, um, you know, with that living mulch, and this is something that I neglected to say earlier over the course of the season for us, we always hope that we get some sort of canopy closure. Uh, we want that in corn. We want that in, and cotton, Uh, you know soybeans is the same way we want some canopy closure well what ends up happening with the living mulch is it as that canopy is closing it starts to it starts to die off die off with quotes right die off um and as that plant all the foliage is starting to die off it's releasing nitrogen over the course of the season and so by the time you get to the end of the season you're going to think well that didn't work so good right i killed all my clover well You have a huge seed bank that um, from all the blooms that you had in the spring and, you know, there's, there's, it's perennial, right? There, there's still some uh, underground reserves that are there that will allow it to come back over the course of the winter. If you layer herbicides on top of that abuse, especially if you apply a broadcast, you won't have anything left because it's already, it's already kind of being the, the plants, the crops are already kind of beating it down. And so you throw throw a post-emergence over top of that that's a broadcast post as opposed to a post-directed, you've wasted your time in terms of making that a perennial cover crop, at least in the southern states, right? So for us, that would be the case.
0: I think you said it well. It does really seem now taking a step back and looking at this, like this herbicide weed control bit of it. This really is where the rubber hits the road. And Mm -hmm. just listening to you talk about it, I've started to think like, just kind of in terms of basic like okay in this type of system what's on the table and what's off the table Mm -hmm. and it seems like you said you know post-broadcast versus post-directed like it really really does need to be Mm post-directed and then I guess at that point because there's so many different herbicide resistance technologies based in or baked into crops now you know Mm -hmm. then list systems and um
2: Extend, Extend uh, and, yeah, Liberty you know, Link, Roundup Ready. Yeah.
0: Right. So the basic ones be it right 2,4 D, Glyphosate, Liberty, Dicamba. Um, I guess so. Those are, if we're doing post directed, all those are still on the table for post apps. Yeah. Post directed apps.
2: Post-directed, yeah. If you're doing post directed, those are on the table. And what we actually use to, to establish our vegetation free strip, getting back to Dwayne's question earlier is we'll actually spray dicamba and glyphosate to establish those strips. Um, okay. That gives us a good, uh, a really good kill um, going into the season for those strips. You know, I, I know if you have growers that are thinking, to, thinking about this, they're thinking, oh, I'll just plant straight into the clover. It'll be fine. Don't do that. Do not do that. Based on our research, and, and this is in cotton, but, um, you know, it's a little bit smaller seeded than what you would see with corn. Is it doesn't work. And what ends up happening is those strips are really, really crucial. And the reason they're crucial is because even if you have the best no-till planting setup, um, this clover for us is, you know, stoloniferous. We've got these stolons, right? And so you've got this really tight interconnected web of these stolons that have been establishing over the course of the winter. You put a no-till planter in there, even with row cleaners at the front. Those stolons don't get pushed. All those stolons don't get pushed out of the way. You've got a nice front culter, but what ends up happening is it completely hairpins around that culter. You put your seed in there, and you get no furrow closure. And no furrow closure means you're basically getting suicidal germination of your crop. We, like I, like I mentioned earlier, we have um, a, a strip width study where we're looking at these different strip widths from zero to ninety centimeters. So zero to three feet for us, again, 36 inch rows. You go out there and you look at, we've got zero, six inches, 12 inches, 24 inches, and then bare ground. You go up there and you compare the stand in and in a zero where we've established no vegetation strip, even to six inches. It's like nine day difference. I mean, we have almost no cotton that comes up. I, I think, you know, the most we had in, in a 20 foot you know, research plot, four rows, uh, we had 10 plants come up in a zero, right? That's it. Whereas, you know, you look at even six inches or 12 inches, it's a full stand. So that little bit of early season herbicide management of that strip is really, is really critical.
0: I have two more questions. Whenever we're, it's respect the strip, right? That seems yeah. to be the name like of the game here. I like that. I like that. Respect to the establishment of the strip. So whenever we're talking to get real nitty gritty here, when we're talking about like nozzle selection and boom height in order to like, you said you need to like plug up every other sprayer, but can you speak a little bit to like, is the importance of the right boom height and, you know, make sure there's no overlap and nozzle selection.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things to kind of think about with, uh, with establishing these strips is, you know, normally we're running, like I mentioned, those drops, right? So we're trying to actually get very close to our clover with our nozzle. So we're usually using like an 80-02 nozzle. In the strip width, we use like four different, that strip width study, we use like four different nozzles to establish these different strip widths. But for for probably a 12-inch strip, you're looking at maybe an 80-02 nozzle. It needs to be an even spray nozzle, does not need to be a broadcast nozzle. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with the way nozzles are kind of set up, a broadcast nozzle, if you look at the pattern shape, we have that triangular shape. If you're looking at that triangular shape from the side, you can visualize it going from 100% of the spray volume in the center, fading to 50% on the edges, which is why you have to have overlap, right? When you we, when we talk about sprayer setup, we often have those spray nozzles overlap. And that's basically um, how we get 100%, a uniform coverage of 100% of that spray volume across the boom. With an even spray or banding nozzle, those nozzles basically are 100% across the entire spray width of that nozzle. So it doesn't fade to 50% on either side. It's a a clean line of demarcation of where that spray is going one of the reasons that we use those drops is so that we can not have to worry about there being drift and uh, establishing those strips and maintaining those strips because we want to maintain our, our living mulch that's in between our rows, right? If we have drift, then that living mulch is, uh, can be damaged. Um, it may take a while for it to to kind of come back out of that damage. So, you know, that means it's not actively growing, it may not have the weed suppression that you want. Right. So there's, so we use that banding nozzle. We're getting, you know, probably within 12 or 12 or so inches of that actual um, of that band. And so even in, in crop uh, situations, what we've done is we've outfitted that, uh, that drop nozzle with a, a another nozzle that will turn sideways. So it's almost like making a banded application like they used to do in cotton, right? So you could use um, an OC nozzle, off-center nozzle, right, to make a banding application on of that band. It's again, it gets to be a little bit more challenging to manage, but if you if you are interested and want to manage it, it's completely doable. You know, that's one of the things we've tried to do is scale this up to a grower level. Sometimes at the research level, you're like, oh yeah, this is totally doable, and your backpack spraying stuff on. And then you try to scale it up, and you're like, "This is not doable." Why am I doing this? <laughs> Dwayne's laughing; <laughs> he knows exactly. what Oh, I'm oh about. yeah,
1: you know we we've, we've said, "Oh, this, this this should work, right?" You know, you yeah. get you get from your you mentioned twenty foot farming. You know, you get yeah. to field scale. Oh, this is not practical at all.
2: Right? Yeah, and so that's what we've tried to do with this larger um, cover crop study: is take it to the field level and, and see if it will work. Um, and we, we're seeing that using those drops. Um, that work really well. We're able to just modify our sprayer and, a, you know, Dr. Hill used a, a hooded sprayer for a long time, right? That's not, not, not necessarily always going to be an available thing to everybody. If you have a hooded sprayer, all you have to do is move those hoods over instead of them being to spray in between the rows, you just are spraying the rows, right? So if you have that technology or you got an old hooded sprayer sitting back in the barn or, you know, back in the equipment junk pile, you know, you can dig it out and and use that. That's a great option. There are some limitations to that. Crop height's going to be a big one. Those in season applications can be challenging with a with a hooded sprayer, which is why we were thinking, all right, well, to buy drops, most folks have drops sitting around for fertilizer applications. Why can't we just use those, right, to apply? You know, things via banding. Again, not a huge investment like you would have to buy a, a new banding uh, a new hooded sprayer, right? So you know, the barrier to entry, our goal was to say, all right, the barrier to entry of this is much lower now. And we're able to use these drops and these banding nozzles to kind of maximize the potential adoption level of, of, of this uh, living mulch technology. So.
0: I think I'm going to redact my second question. I was going to ask uh, about potential of maybe using like a group two herbicide broadcast because I know that there's some ALS herbicides that are safe to use on corn as well as legumes but you know with resistance issues and weed populations and respecting the strip I think that that's probably not even worth asking so well um, and
2: there there is there are some absolutely I'll, I'll just just address that just a little bit and so some of the initial some of the initial work that we did um, was looking at some group twos, some group fours, uh, group 15s, you know, in, in the legume sphere during establishment, right? Those that can be used on legumes. Um, and there are some, but, you know, I think one of the things, not only respecting the strip, but respect the herbicide technology too. We haven't done a lot of the work to see, all right, what can we spray in terms of some of those legume herbicides? Kind of what's that interface look like between what's available for the crop and not damaging to the crop and what can be used in those legumes? So we were using pre, uh, during clover establishment, things like lamb, two 2,4-D, 2,4-DB, you know, mixes of those. And we're able to um, do a pretty decent job controlling uh, weeds during establishment. Now, when you get into in crop uses, that's a whole nother ballgame, right? You really have to be careful about what you spray because you don't want there to be an issue where you have, you know, carry into your final, final, final produced crop, right? That final grain crop. Um, you also don't. And so you don't want to open yourself up to that. Right. Um, or, you know, thinking, hey, I almost put this out, uh, this herbicide out to help with some weeds or, or minor things in the clover, but then you end up shooting yourself in the foot on the crop, right? You have to really think systematically about how am I managing two things at once? One thing I will say to your listeners is before you get into living mulch, before you decide to take on living mulch as part of your production system, try cover crops first, try traditional cover crops first. And this is advanced, this is advanced level cover cropping, right? This is, a whole nother level of making your brain hurt a little bit, right? So think about living mulches as as kind of the when you when you feel like you've got cover crops down, right? And you're you're seeing the benefit cover benefit of cover crops on your farm, you're thinking, hey, I want to, I want to take this to the next level. That is when you move into living mulches. Don't jump straight into living mulches from going from from nothing, right? From no cover crop adoption to straight into living mulches. Because there's still a lot that we don't know. There's still a lot that we're learning. You know, there's a lot of opportunity to maximize this system. Um, And there's a lot more, as you know, Joey, there's a lot more research done in cover crops and adoption and utility. And, you know, there's a lot of cover crop selector tools out there. The Northeast Cover Crops Council has a great selector tool. Um, The Southern Cover Crops Council We've been working on a selector tool with them for the last year or so. Don't jump straight into living mulches if you ha- if you don't have any experience, um, you'll find yourself frustrated. I think
1: we talked a little before about weed control, weed suppression. You mentioned nematodes. Can can you enlighten us to if is there anything we need to be thinking about or with 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 respect to insects? Any yeah. any potential yeah. problems there?
2: So we'll we'll talk about this in two phases, right? The first is the negative, and then we'll we'll go to the the positive side of things. You know, one of the things to think about in terms of living mulches on the negative side with regards to insects and other pathogens is there's a there's a significant possibility, especially on our sandier soils, at least for us in, in Georgia, and I would imagine it would be similar, you know, where you guys are at, where if we're on those sandier soils you know, have that being a host for nematodes and carrying nematodes over from one season to a, to the next. Um, do y'all have a lot of nematodes on heavier soils too?
0: This is a question for Dr. Adriana. Maria Williams um we did a podcast recently on soybean cyst nematode and if my memory serves me correctly i think that she said that it's present across a fairly wide range of soil types okay. yeah she
1: so, said it was a basically equal equal opportunity provider okay. right because i know for phrasing. us
2: like like sting and a couple other types of nematodes tend to prefer you know those sandier soils uh, but yeah, we—I mean—we have cyst nematode in, in the northern part of the of our uh, of our state as well. I mean, we haven't seen any issues in 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 our production systems on our heavier soils. But it is something to consider. Um, there are certain co- certain clover species or cover crop species that are more susceptible to kind of that carryover effect, that green bridge effect of of nematodes, as opposed to others. I know Sierra rye tends to not be a host which is why we have a lot of adoption of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely something to consider. Now, I, th- I think one of the things to, to also consider too is we have seen, um, and I'm not a plant pathologist and I'm not an entomologist, I'm a weeds guy. You know, We have seen some issues with other pathogens kind of being present in the living mulch, uh, maybe some Southern blight. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely something to to, to consider. But um, in terms of specifics, we haven't really seen a whole lot, uh, especially in our in our more northern site. But I, I think if you have a nematode issue, it might be something to kind of be a little bit weary of in terms of the legumes in particular. Um, some of the grassy species are less of a problem.
0: Just to selfishly make it about me for a minute, I know. Oh, that...
2: Go for it, Joey. <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, during my graduate work, a lot of it was about the cover crop effects on insect populations. And Mm -hmm. um, it was limited in the sense that it was only, you know, a traditional winter cover crop system. And then we were terminating roughly two weeks prior to cash crop planting. And we didn't really see, at least in in my study, we didn't really see a lot of carryover because I think just that loss of habitat, I think they just go somewhere else. And that Mm -hmm. lag time between when the cover crop's there and then when the cash crop is there. But I always really, really wanted to dig into this. And I know in the Managing Cover Crops Profitably book, which I think you can get the PDF for free online, Mm -hmm. um, Sharad Fatak from the University of Georgia, he, I think he did some work on the intercropping, like living cover crop systems with cotton specifically. And I think that he mentioned like, so there's so many different beneficials. I think it was like the uh, minute pirate bug or insidious flower bug or something like that. Like you saw dramatic increases in the amount of this beneficial um, beneficial insect when you had this clover intercrop with cotton. But at the same time, like you always have the potential to see increased stink bugs and, and tarnished plant bugs. And it's just unfortunate. You don't usually get to Put this extra habitat into the system without attracting both pests and beneficials. So it's that famous, you know, academia answer, right? Like we need to do more research. Like, or it depends. It depends. Yeah, or it. Yeah, that's the famous one, right? Well, it depends. Um, So this is a long-winded way to say that it, it really does depend on if you have that history of that insect being present in your field, and then how willing are you to, to scout and how frequently to really determine, okay, yeah, we actually did see a really significant increase in, um, grasshoppers or brown marmorated stink bugs or whatever it is, or, uh, or hopefully an increase in, in beneficial insect activity. And it's one yeah. of those things that, uh, you, I guess you need a good crop scout to, to go figure that out for you sometimes.
2: Yeah, and I do feel like, and we have seen, you know, especially in cereal rye, we've seen decreases and thrips are a major problem in cotton. And so we've seen decreases in thrips with cereal rye. One of the other things that has been really interesting with both the living mulch and cereal rye is we've seen increasing populations of the amaranth flea beetle. I don't know if this is a a beetle that y'all have or not, but it's been really pretty incredible for us to see because we'll have palmer come up, we'll have spiny amaranth come up. And it's just a small little black beetle, but it will decimate those plants. It will decimate those weeds. And so, you know, th- those weeds, will, they'll get to be, you know, maybe 18 inches tall. And then they'll basically be defoliated. Those That, that flea beetle will move in and defoliate that entire species. I think there's something to, to what you're saying, Joey, in the sense that, yeah, we're increasing. You know, there may be some species that we're driving away. You know, but there's also species that we're providing habitat to that can be beneficial. uh, In in our case, right, I see this potentially as a route of biological control for some of our most problematic weeds, like the in the amaranth genus. I mean, that's that they drive a lot of our you know decisions in the southern U.S. and in the Midwest for water hemp and. So, if there's ways that we can kind of provide more habitat to them, i I, I really believe that that's just another one of those ecosystem services that we're providing um, in our agroecosystem that we don't even know is happening, right we we're just we're planting that cover crop maybe with the goal of mitigating weed impacts or providing better um, you know increases in soil organic matter or increasing water infiltration. But then there's also these other things that we that we benefit from.
0: All right, I was just going to say the piece that you mentioned there that I think is so key is in the agro ecosystem, right? Because with a lot of my research, it was before the agro ecosystem, mm-hmm. and then there's mm-hmm. this gap in between. And based on what I observe, you don't really see a lot of carryover. But I think having it, having that extra extra environment, I guess, um, extra physical niches available for them Mm -hmm. to exist on in the agro ecosystem is really key Mm -hmm. if you're you know interested in trying this four-dimensional chess level of cover cropping then you could potentially see that uh, enhanced level of biological control which is a really cool side benefit because as you said half the time or maybe the majority of the time it's going on and you're not even aware of it
2: (laughs) yeah yeah and you know it's interesting too like it's a war zone out there (laughs) yeah yeah nature is cruel right um and one of the things too that i think is really cool uh is we have we have uh our uh bee care or bee lab folks have hives out of the um at one of the farms that we do work on with the living mulch and and when that clover's in bloom it's just like they're all there right and and you know they're there even after we've planted our cotton, right? Because that clover is still blooming, and so it just makes me wonder. You know what other benefits are we not are we not seeing? You know, I mean those those bees are out there foraging at that point. The crimson clover is done; they're not foraging on that. The Sierra rye is done; they wouldn't forage on that anyways. You know, if we're looking at a bare ground system. There's nothing out there for them to forage until basically the, for us the cotton's in bloom, which is way, uh, way later than than when the than when the clovers bloom. And so it's we're filling this you know ecological niche for pollen and, and nectar production that normally wouldn't be there. Uh, and so and I also think you know it makes me wonder. All right, it, in terms of these other spinoff things, like what's the microbial soil activity look like? And how does that change over time? And so, you know, we, I have a student that just did, we're doing a seed burial study and we're looking at seed degradation and all of these different systems and comparing seed, wheat seed degradation, because, you know, the idea is if we have a living, if we have a living mulch that's living continuously, right, are we providing more of a, of a home for those microbes to be there and maybe they're preferential microbes for degrading wheat seeds, so, like, how does all this system? What are all of these system benefits that you know only the imagination can allow us to really fully understand? It, it's exciting, but at the same time, you know, it comes with a lot of challenges, right? So, uh, it's kind of like boss level hard in terms of uh, in terms of being able to make it work. But when it does work, it it feels really good, and it and it 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 provides all these benefits. Um, but you gotta get to the to the level to where you're ready to go up against the boss, right?
1: Awesome to think about all those uh, you know benefits that you just talked about. And w- another episode, a recent one we had, uh, we were talking about soil health and the 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 soil web and the beneficials, and just incredible to to think about all the other potential impacts. Uh, you know, we might see some things visibly above ground, but all that other stuff that's going on can be a benefit for us, for us too. Mm -hmm. Nick, this, this time it's flown by, I think for, (laughs) for, for me um, just because of it, it's, it's just interesting information to hear what other folks are doing across, across the country. So we're going to give you the last word, you know, if folks are interested, if we, if we whet their appetite for something, uh, some final thoughts from you.
2: I mean, I, I think if you haven't tried cover crops, give them a try um they're not anything to be afraid of you know as we've talked about today they do take a little bit of, of forethought and a little bit of thinking but don't be afraid you know they they have they bring great benefit to your to your farm um and i think that just a willingness and an open-mindedness to try new things Uh, you know, we're not sending you out into the great unknown. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of folks out there that have cover crop experience and that have the ability to guide you through the process. Um, And as I tell my students, like, it's amazing what you can get when you just ask. And so, you know, if you ask, you have great resources available to you. Just ask. Uh, Joey's done a lot of really great work in cover crops I know with, with Dr. Gamble. And, and so he's a great resource, you know, it's, it's not like a, it's nothing to be afraid of. Um, So give it a try. And when you do get to the level where you're, where you're the cover crops master and you're ready to take it to the next level, uh, try those living mulches out. I really think that they, that they have benefited a lot of a lot of our production systems here in Georgia, go out there, do good work, create the agro system agro ecosystem that you want to see for the future and so uh, i think cover crops are a lot of a, a huge part of that
0: thank you so much nick for coming on the show today i sure hope that we can have some more uga folks on in the future um, as he mentioned you know i do have some experience with cover crops i certainly wouldn't consider myself expert but we have a lot of folks at at penn state here in pennsylvania that are willing to help you. So reach out to me or Dwayne and we'll get you in touch with the right folks. And as Nick said, just ask, right? Fear not, just ask and uh, try it on a small amount of acres and you might be surprised what happens. Okay. Thanks again for joining
2: us, Nick. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank y'all so much.
0: Take care.